Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello, everyone, and welcome to you all. Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. It is Tuesday, May 16th, just after 4 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. For those of you like me who relish knowing what it is in individual time zones, that makes it 9.02 in British summertime. Again, if you are like me and have no life and time zones are the bit of trivia you cling to. Nevertheless, we've got a busy, busy show today. Oh, Sean is telling me I have to do Saskatchewan, but the problem is I actually uh, never know what time it is in Saskatchewan because like half the year it's on Central Time and the other half it's on Mountain time and I forget which is which. So I, I think it's on central time right now. I think Saskatchewan is one hour uh, behind. We have a guest from Saskatchewan today. Uh, so <laughs> my hope is that we uh, got the time zone right. Uh, but we are going to be talking about lots of good stuff in the show. We, we don't have a Saskatchewan guest today, do we? No, that's tomorrow, isn't it? Yeah. We have one. We have a guest from uh, Nova Scotia today. We have a guest who is uh, from Ontario, but is in England today. And this is like five minutes of the show. You'll never get back. And any Sean, you're fired. I mean, after the end of the show, though, we, we got to get through to the end before you uh, pack up your virtual bag. Uh, today, we are going to talk about this uh, case that I've been following, which is a local case for me in London, Ontario, but has much broader implications. And that is the decision to ban a speech being put together by the Society for Academic Freedom and Scholarship made by the local library. The London Public Library committed to intellectual freedom says free speech is a cornerstone and libraries should be upholding it. But when a lecturer from overseas wants to come and talk about free speech, that's just a little too controversial to allow on library property. So we'll talk about that with the president of the Society for Academic Freedom and Scholarship, Mark Mercer, in just a couple of moments. Also going to delve into the wonderful world of corporate welfare. You may remember that case we discussed a couple of weeks ago with Volkswagen getting, you know, bajillion dollars from the government. And now all of a sudden, another automotive manufacturer is saying they want more money too. So they've halted construction on a plant until they get more money from the government. So it's almost as though we saw this one coming. But uh, first off, I want to just talk about this clip that's making its uh, way around the internet right now, which is just a delight. Delightful, delightful clip. So Justin Trudeau today came out and his government promised some new bail reform, which is supposedly going to make it a little bit more difficult for violent offenders to get bail. But a lot of people think this is kind of window dressing, that this problem has been going on for quite some time. Police have been warning about it. People in the community safety sector have been warning about it. And there has not been a solution from the government. And the conservatives have been talking about this. They don't like the revolving door of the justice system. Pierre Polyev, in particular, came out against this. And there was one particular reporter that just didn't get quite grasp the issue. Take a look. When you talk about bail, the crime has already happened, or the alleged crime has already happened. So how can you attribute bail to this increase in crime and not, should, we, should there not be more supportive measures to prevent the crime in the first place? Well, <laughs> the... Being on bail, they've already allegedly committed the crime. So where, you know, they're committing crimes on bail. <laughs> That's the problem. The problem is, I'll give you an example. In Vancouver, the same 40 offenders were arrested 6,000 times in a year. That's 150 arrests 
per offender per year. Why? Because they're arrested in the morning, then they're released on bail by noon, they re-offend, they're back in jail by two in the afternoon, and then they're released by the evening so that they can commit their final crime before they go to bed. The failure of the, the system to not support people who have committed crimes, gone to jail, served their, their sentence, you know, and then they're committing another crime. So is this not a failure of things like social services and support for people who have committed crimes? Are you, they're ser are you serious? I'm asking you a oh, question. I mean, are you serious? Come on. You're telling well, me, no, excuse me, let, let me answer your question. Are you honestly saying that it's society's fault if a repeat violent offender commits 60 or 70 offenses? I think that criminal is to blame for his own actions. He is personally responsible. We're not talking about some kid who made one mistake when he was 19. We're talking about people who do 60, 70 violent offenses. And then they're, because they're criminals. But why are they criminals? Because they do crime. And why do they do crime? Because we let them out early on bail. <laughs> that, I, I've seen that like four or five times. If you're wondering why I was like delayed on the show today, uh, well, maybe you didn't know that I was, but I, I was slightly because I just like had watched that for like 12 minutes. And, and my goodness, like it just at a certain point, I like Pierre Polyev just breaking the idea of, of, you know, being polite and civil and courteous. And it's just like, are you serious? Like that face has got to be a meme until the end of time. So we'll talk about this a little bit more tomorrow, but I wanted you to see the clip and be able to enjoy it and bask in it as I could. Going back to the story of the London Public Library, which is London, Ontario, not London, England, which has been especially confusing because the speaker at the center of this is a speaker from England. So I was like getting retweeted by all these Brits that were like taking out their anger at the library in London, England, uh, which admittedly would probably do something like this too. But in this particular context, it is the public library down in my neck of the woods in southwestern Ontario which has barred an academic freedom group, of which I happen to be a member, the Society for Academic Freedom and Scholarship, from booking out its theater, from paying to rent its theater, to host a talk by British author Joanna Williams. The talk, unironically, was to be titled Sex, Gender, and the Limits of Free Speech, and this was evidently too controversial to hold at the London Public Library, despite its uh, stated policy, its official policy committed to intellectual freedom. And I, I just want to put up on the screen here for a moment the Statement on Intellectual Freedom in Libraries, which is from the uh, CFLA, the Canadian Federation of Library Associations. And this statement has actually been adopted by the London Public Library as policy. And there's a, a line in here that you should read, a couple of lines, that all individuals have the right to access the full range of knowledge, imagination, ideas, and opinions, and to express their thoughts publicly. Only the courts may abridge free expression rights in Canada. The policy also says that the right to intellectual freedom includes the right to seek, receive, and impart information and ideas through any media and regardless of frontiers. And it also affirms that libraries have a, quote, core responsibility, unquote, to support, defend, and promote 
the universal principles of intellectual freedom and privacy. So uh, we have this policy committing the London Public Library to intellectual freedom, but when the rubber hits the road, they say that a talk on free speech is evidently worthy of being deplatformed. The president of the Society for Academic Freedom and Scholarship, SAFS, is a professor from St. Mary's University by the name of Mark Mercer, and he joins me now. Mark, it's good to talk to you again. Thanks for coming on today. Now, I mean, the one gross sort of or perverse irony here is that your organization exists to combat this, and you're getting proof of the very point that Joanna Williams was going to be speaking about, which is that there are these limits on free speech that exist. Well, yes, but do you think that irony is appreciated by the people who, are, who, are, uh, who denied us our, uh, our space? Well, no, and, and I guess that's where I, I want to just talk a little bit about SAFs for a moment, because this sure. is not, I mean, and again, I mean no offense to, to you and, and to uh, others, because I'm a member as well, but this is not a, a fire-breathing organization, I'd say. I, any meetings I've ever been to have been very respectful. You and I were, were corresponding this week. There's never been any disruptive protest at it, and, and you know, one member of SAF said, you know, it's a bunch of stuffy academics sitting around. It's not, you know, th this, controversial, th this controversial lightning rod. So why why do you think that this ban has been issued by the library? Well, I'm not sure, but I want to take issue with some of the things you said. <laughs> oh, please. I was just quoting uh, one of your speakers from this year as far as stuffy academics go, but yeah. carry on. Well, we, we, th there's lots of controversy, but uh, yes, uh, we, we, we discuss um, things civilly and uh, uh, because we're, we, we want to, uh, to understand how things are. We want to talk with each other. Uh, so uh, uh, very many controversial uh, things have been said at SAF's meetings, but uh, but no, but it's no always done it. in a respectful way, not to right. offend. There, there I guess that's more where I was getting at there. That's right. No no fisticuffs, uh, no pushing people into the hallways or anything like that. Um, yes, uh, so uh, it is um, um, s strange to me that uh, a group whose uh, record has been one of uh, civil discourse. Uh, um, is now um, denied space in the library, and, and some of the reasons, I, I don't think I understand them, but that we would deny um, the library patrons um, uh, use of the facilities or something like that. Uh, what, what are we going to do? Uh, uh, take um, uh, pea shooters and, and, and shoot at library pat patrons? Uh, so I, I really don't understand where, where they're coming from. Uh, yeah, you know, and, and uh, we, we're not blocking entrances. <laughs> no, and, and if, if anyone's familiar with the layout of the library, which uh, most people listening wouldn't be, it's not even in the library itself. It's it's in a dedicated area across the hall. So it's like, you know, someone going to check out Fifty Shades of Grey or whatever wouldn't even have to, you know, be in earshot of your event. So this idea that it would be disruptive to other library patrons, one of the other uh, policies they quoted was risk or likelihood of physical danger to participants and also uh, workplace harassment and sexual harassment prevention policies were uh, quote unquote engaged. Yeah, well, maybe there's a rock band called SAFs and they have, <laughs> but <laughs> they got us confused with some band that's been trashing hotel rooms for the last decade. Uh, yeah, it's, it's uh, absurd. I had uh, no idea how one could think that a group of stuffy old academics uh, who do talk about controversial things, but stuffy nonetheless, uh, would be um, uh, a, a threat to a property or, or, or person. 
One of the, the challenges with the no platforming approach, which we, we've seen and, and you know full well on university campuses, is that oftentimes people will use the language uh, to, to say that they're supporters of free speech, but they want to make it very difficult for some people to speak. They'll say, well, just because you have the right to speak doesn't mean you have the right to a platform. And, and the problem with this is that the very places that should be platforms for mm -hmm. controversial speech, evocative speech, are places like libraries and universities, yet they're the ones that seem to be the most susceptible to this idea of saying that this speech is going to go against unspecified policies. Well, we do have a right to uh, um, a platform in the sense that we have a right to line up and, and pay our money um, at venues that uh, are responsible for um, allowing people in, in the community to come together and, and, and talk about things. Um, so, that, you know, we, we do have um, a right to a platform, uh, just in that we have a, a, a right to pay for this uh, space at, uh, at fair rates. Uh, and so uh, that's being denied us. And uh, this is why I, th I think the thing is deeply disturbing. Uh, I think the only grounds that seem to make any sense for denying us the space is that they don't like what they believe Joanna will say. Uh, it, it, it can't be that we are a, a threat to uh, property or, or, or persons. Uh, so, so that must be it. But um, they do have an obligation, um, as, as you noted by reading the Intellectual Freedom Statement, uh, to, uh, to grant us that space. One of the things that that strikes me uh, about that statement is that there was a big push a few years ago in Ontario, for example, to have universities put these commitments to academic freedom and, and freedom of speech, these policies in place. And mm -hmm. I, I was a supporter of that because I think it's better to have than not. But I, I think that what this episode is illuminating and some of the other issues from the academy in the last few years is that you can have the words on the paper all you want. But if the people in these institutions are not committed to free speech, or maybe they are nominally, but are too scared to follow through with it, it actually doesn't really mean all that much. That's been one of my central themes for 15 years or so in my writing, that it's, it's the culture that matters. And if we have a culture of um, intellectual endeavor, a culture of... Um, uh, uh, free, uh, freedom of expression, freedom of inquiry, uh, then, you know, we don't have to worry too much about uh, what, the, uh, what the words on the paper are. Uh, words on, the, on, on paper are good when uh, things um, um, become difficult, uh, but unless there is that commitment, no, uh, they don't mean much at all. Universities can get around um, government-imposed policies, uh, another problem with the government-imposed policies is that there's no better way of getting, of galvanizing the anti-free speech uh, people than to uh, threaten government action against the university. Um, I, I'm still on the fence. I think there are good um, arguments for governments taking uh, a more active role than they are, uh, but really it does come down to the professors and the students. The professors and the students have to be in favor freedom of expression in order for the uh, university campus to be a place of freedom of expression. Um, you probably haven't seen this yet, but I, I'm going to have a story about it at five o'clock today. This just came about this afternoon, and I, I'm still giving the, the library the opportunity to respond to it. A, a memo that was sent out uh, internally by the CEO of the library about this incident. But, but one part that I, I can raise with you is that uh, the CEO says that the library policies have to be uh, filtered through the lens of, I'm going to pull up the exact wording here, exceptional customer service and a commitment to anti-racism and anti-oppression. 
And, and those words in an academic setting, I, I think, are they, they're loaded terms. And they may be on the surface sound great. Yes, anti-racism is good. Anti-oppression is good. But what strikes me in the library case clearly and in universities is that the idea of academic freedom seems to be secondary to these things. It's, yes, academic freedom, but we have to balance this against our commitment to diversity or we have to balance this against our, our commitment to anti-racism. And th these things don't really balance so much as be subject to a veto, it seems. Well, and th that's right. And, and really, a lot depends on what one wants from a democratic, multicultural um, society, individualistic society. And I think the um, equity, uh, diversity and inclusion um, initiatives and ideas are, 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 have a, a basis in a sort of collectivity or collectivism uh, where the group is somehow supreme. Um, and if you are concerned about um, uh, in the individual, you think the, uh, the individual inquiry, the individual uh, discussant is uh, uh, what's most important, uh, then you won't see a conflict between academic freedom and um, uh, anti-racism. Uh, but it's only if uh, somehow um, the, uh, the group, however it's de defined, uh, is the um, arbiter of, uh, of, of, of what is um, oppressive and what isn't oppressive, uh, that we find conflicts between freedom of expression or academic freedom and uh, uh, anti-racism. Now, as uh, I indicated in my reporting, and as you've said elsewhere, the event is going on. You, you've had to, to find another venue, and uh, the talk by Joanna Williams, which I'll be at, and I would encourage anyone else in the area to be at, is, is proceeding Friday at the, uh, the Delta Hotel. But uh, in general, where do you go from here? I know you indicated uh, when we spoke earlier this week that you're trying to get uh, a sense of internal, internal processes and deliberations here. I, I know I've also filed a, a Freedom of Information request on my own independently of you, but uh, what mm. do you you want to do moving forward with this? Well, I want people to know about this and uh, to uh, um, uh, approach their, their libraries and say that uh, this is uh, inconsistent with the library's mission, what the library uh, should be doing. I think if people don't know uh, that we were turned down, um, then it looks like, you know, everything's fine uh, with the library. So, uh, you know, I want um, people to know and uh, people to, uh, to, to say, well, you know, if they can do it to um, um, the Society for Academic Freedom and Scholarship, uh, which is just, a, you know, a talking shop. <laughs> uh, we, uh, uh, we, we like controversy. We like to talk about it. Um, if, then um, anyone uh, could be uh, turned down. Uh, there just don't seem to be any grounds for... Um, uh, for denying us uh, uh, space, and then that's an arbitrary decision by the uh, by the library, and um, everyone is is affected. So that's uh, that. That's why we want to know more about it. Yes, even though we're um, uh, ha we're having the uh, the talk, and uh, we'll be doing this for uh, for for a number of years coming. Good. Well, that's, uh, I'm looking forward to it. And uh, anyone who is interested can learn more at uh, the SAFS website there. Mark Mercer, Professor Mark Mercer and President of SAFS. Always good to talk to you, Mark. Thanks, and we'll see you on Friday. 
Thanks, Andrew. Yes, looking forward to it. See you there. All right. Bye. Thank you very much. And yeah, Joanna Williams, uh, she has never been canceled. She's had a, a call in the UK at one point to cancel one of her talks, but it's never happened. Uh, the odd thing, I didn't mention this with Mark, uh, SAFs actually had an event at the very same library in 2019, which I was at, and I had introduced the keynote speaker, who is a, a University of Chicago historian, Rachel Fulton-Brown. And again, no protest, no controversy, except for, uh, you know, the, the sort of the controversy that uh, rigorous debate and thought can sometimes provoke. But uh, the idea that we have libraries which are fighting tooth and nail against so-called book bans from the, uh, you know, evil, scary conservatives in the U.S. or whatever, uh, they talk about the importance of free exchange of ideas, except if they don't like your idea. And then all of a sudden, it is not all that important. I want to move on to the idea of corporate welfare here. And, and we talked a few weeks back on the show about the slippery slope, which you didn't even need to look that far down the pipeline to see coming. And the implications of the federal and provincial governments bending over backwards to give billions and billions and billions in subsidies to Volkswagen to build an electric vehicle battery plant in St. Thomas, Ontario. Again, I'm sticking with local news today, but there's a, a bigger picture aspect of it. $13 billion was what we found out Volkswagen was getting. And now you look just a couple hours down the 401 and Stellantis, an auto manufacturer building a plant in Windsor, Ontario, has halted because it wants more money from the federal and provincial governments. And now the great story here, uh, Philippe Francois Champagne, the federal cabinet minister, says Ontario needs to pay its fair share to the company to end the stalemate. So all of a sudden, it is companies shaking down the government at all levels for money. And this is just the way business is done in Canada. Aaron Woodrick is the domestic policy director for the McDonald Laurier Institute and, and joins us now. Uh, Aaron, it's always good to talk to you. Could we have seen this coming from a mile away that now every company is just wanting more and more cash now that they've seen uh, how much is coming out of the government taps? Boy, if only someone could have predicted this, like you and me and a lot of other people who said, you know, I, I do have to confess, though, Andrew, I didn't see the chickens coming home to roost quite this quickly. No, I, I thought mean, maybe like years, not weeks. Yeah, I mean, it is really something here. And, and, and look, put yourself in Stellantis's shoes, right? I mean, what they're doing is perfectly logical, perfectly rational. They're saying, they're saying, hold on a second. You just gave VW 13 billion. What are we doing here? I mean, we can clearly get more. They're clearly prepared to pay more. So now they're, they, they've, they've stopped constructing their plant um and you know the thing that really the real kicker here andrew is i'm absolutely certain that nobody in the ford government or trudeau government when they were busy trying to you know get uh, seduce vw with billions of dollars none of them put any thought into what it would do to stellantis none of them put any thought into what it would do to other companies watching and learning how to play the game so that's the real uh tragedy here is this is a mess entirely of their own making now you've got ford telling the feds to do it and you've got the feds telling ford government to do it and i'm saying guys before you were you were climbing over each other for a chance to offer the subsidy now you're saying oh no no it's not my problem i mean that the, the irony is pretty rich here yeah, and that's the problem. I mean, they were just bragging about the $13 billion when I would have seen that as a confession more than a, a boast. And, and now, you know, they've decided Volkswagen is the beneficiary. Everyone else should just be satisfied with what they got. But but again, if, if you're a company like this, and I mean, basically you're holding jobs over the government's head here, I, I, I get it. From a business perspective, it makes sense because free money is better than no money and they know sure. it's being dished out. 
Sure, but that's the, that's exactly why these things are dangerous precedents. Once you're a government that hangs a sign in your window saying we will we will give free money away, what do you think is going to happen to every few, any company, Andrew, that's thinking of coming to Ontario um, is going to stop at Queen's Park first and say and hint and say, hey, we were thinking of building this plant here. We might build it somewhere else. What have you got for me? I mean, this is the situation that they have created for themselves. And it's, it, it's just not sustainable. We're going to see how tough they are. I mean, you'll recall on the day of the VW announcement, Andrew, uh, the Prime Minister uh, very explicitly said, oh, well, you know, other companies shouldn't expect this. This is a one-off. Well, <laughs> he's, it's only been a few weeks and he's about to be tested if he's going to keep his word on that. Yeah, and I, I know it's difficult to pull up a, a metaphorical crystal ball here and, and see what's going to happen. I mean, if you're Stellantis and you've already invested in starting this plant and you already budgeted for it it stands to reason that if the government were to call their bluff um i would assume they would proceed rather than cut their losses but uh, you never know and and i think the government may not want this if the stellantis folks end up having better pr than the government does Sure. And, you know, you might be right, but uh, we've seen in the past, we've seen automakers that already have plants in Ontario that were up and running play this game and imply that, you know what, if, if we don't get more subsidies, we might have to leave. So um, it would be nice to see a government try and call their bluff on it for once. I mean, of course, a lot of governments are terrified that their bluff would be called and they'd have to wear it. But if you never call their bluff, I mean, for, from a company standpoint, what have they got to lose by trying to do this all the time? You had a, a great piece in the hub. I think it was, I think it came out yesterday. I read it this morning in which great you talk time. about there being smarter ways to strengthen Canada than with corporate welfare. But one of the angles that you discussed here, which I think is important, is how certain jobs can be sentimentalized. And I, I think, you know, factory jobs are that because it really is to a lot of people this hallmark of a bygone era where everyone in the town works at the same factory and around that factory there's a sense of community. And I, I, I don't think that that sentimentalization, for lack of a better term, is worth the $13 billion. No, and look, there's nothing wrong with, uh, as I write in the piece, of course you should be focused on working class families and communities that have lost their employers. But what I, my argument is that you know, corporate welfare is just creating the illusion of bringing back those old times. It's not mm -hmm. real. I mean, these are not companies that have an attachment to the community. Um, they're only coming because they're getting a big subsidy. It's a bit like saying, I, I've developed this new friendship when really you just paid someone to be your friend. I mean, that's what's going on here. And I think uh, it, particularly for conservatives, they need to be careful that they're not sort of, um, uh, you know, they're not kidding themselves because this is, this is not real. These are not real jobs. I mean, if you pay someone um, to 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 hire you, um, or is that is that a is that a real job? I mean, that's uh, most people would find that a bit bizarre. Is that but that's exactly what's happening here. And so I think people need to remember um, that there's a massive cost involved in something that would otherwise just be celebrated as as a as a pure gain to the community. Yeah, and I, I think there are examples of that. I mean, Chapman's, the ice cream factory up in Markdale, is a really community-oriented factory. I think the, the Savage Arms uh, plant, which I toured a couple of years ago up in, in Peterborough, an American company, but really ingrained in the community. But, but a lot of these automotive uh, manufacturers, it's not to say that they don't have roots in the community in some ways, but I, I don't believe for a second that if EW could uh, do things for more cheaply in Seoul, that they wouldn't in a second just shut down overnight and move everything over there because we've seen these big international conglomerates do that. So they aren't really invested unless the subsidies keep coming. 
Sure. And the other thing, uh, when we romanticize the sort of one company town, we have to remember how those stories ended most of the time. They ended mm -hmm. very badly precisely because companies were at the at the mercy of a single company. I think if you want to build communities that are resilient, that are diversified, you can't have one employer. The goal shouldn't be one big employer. It should be a, a you know, a range of employers so that you, you don't sort of have all your eggs in one basket. And so if anything, I mean, we're, we're trying to recreate a situation that made a lot of these communities vulnerable. And, and that's not something we should aspire to. We should be aspiring to situations where when one company goes out of business, it's not devastating to the whole community. And you do that by having um, a lot of smaller employers instead of just one big one. I know your focus, Aaron, is on the policy over the politics of this, but I, but I was wondering if you had any advice on how politicians could actually criticize this when it becomes very difficult when they have to basically say no to an immediate promise of, you know, 2,500 jobs in a particular town. I mean, in the case of the, the St. Thomas plant, it's in a conservative riding. And I know there was a bit of an awkward encounter there with the local conservative MP, Karen Vecchio, when she was standing beside Trudeau taking pot shots at, at Pierre Polyev for not supporting corporate welfare. Sure. I mean, well, there's a few things. And you can see that the, the federal conservatives have done this by referring it to the parliamentary budget officer. I think that's their way of sort of signaling we're concerned, but they don't want to sort of give uh, the strongly the worded letter approach. Sure. But, the, but they don't want to give the liberals the clip of them saying that they are against these jobs or things like mm -hmm. that. Right. But, you know, I think one thing that uh, that, uh, you know, people who want to criticize this can just be honest about is saying, you know, sure, it, it's going to be good for the people who get those jobs, uh, but let's be honest about the cost. I mean, this is not an ideal situation. We shouldn't have to, to get jobs this way. Um, and, and there's a real cost. I mean, there are a million other priorities. There's so many other things Canadians expect their tax dollars to go to. Um, and the 13 billion is, is, is not exactly chump change. So um, there's an opportunity cost here. And you're right, Andrew, nobody wants to sort of be the, the Debbie Downer and, and point out the bad stuff. But uh, somebody needs to do it. Thankfully, I'm not an elected official, so I have no hesitation in, in calling it out. Yeah, and I mean, when you look at the math, we, we looked at the math last time you and I spoke about this on, on how much it costs per job. But even if you just look at the tax burden, $13 billion mm -hmm. divided by 40 million people, that's 325 bucks a person. I mean, that, that's not an insignificant amount of money that if you were to add, you know, ask like Mike and Canmore, or, you know, Joe and wherever about, they'd say, yeah, my family could use that. Sure. And, and this is for one plant in one community. I mean, if this is your if this is your sort of in, industrial policy generally, how many times can you afford to do this and how many communities and how many sectors? Right. Yeah. Is it really going to be the one off? Uh, you know, color me skeptical that this is going to be the last time they do this. Aaron Woodrick, domestic policy guru over at the McDonald Laurie Institute. Always good to talk to you, Aaron. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks a lot, Andrew. I imagine we'll probably have Aaron back on when the government caves to Stellantis, as I assume slash fear is inevitable in some form. But it is interesting. So, yeah, when they're giving out the $13 billion, you've got Trudeau and Ford uh, doing their buddy comedy shtick, which only ever goes one way. Like Ford will literally bend over backwards for Justin Trudeau, who just like, you know, spits all over him at the first opportunity. And here we have another example of that, where Francois-Philippe Champagne is saying, yeah, this is the Ontario government's problem. They need their, their the ones that are preventing it they need to pay up more uh where like ford who's been doing the oh yeah he's my best friend and i'm not going to lift a hand to help the conservatives and christian freeland's my best buddy and yeah i want justin trudeau to be my best man like all of that is basically meaningless because the federal liberals uh, actually do not hold uh doug ford in any sort of respect they look down upon him yet he still keeps giving them everything they want at the expense of uh, what doug ford would normally in his position be doing to help the conservatives federally. But 
All of that is aside from the main point here, which is that this was an entirely predictable problem. And once uh, Stellantis get what there's a reason that the U.S. policy that's been like parodied in film time and time again is do not negotiate with terrorists. Because the whole point is, if you give five million dollars to a terrorist to free some hostage, they're going to say, wow, this is a really great way to get five million dollars. And then they're just going to start taking hostages left, right and center. In this particular case, it is the taxpayers of Canada who are paying the ransom here and it is not going to end when this proves the concept. So yeah, I hope just for the future aspect of this that the government says to Stellantis, no, we're not playing this game. But I don't think it's going to go that way because the government loves to play this game. Then they're going to show up with a big giant novelty size check on the front lawn. Uh, it wasn't Ed McMahon. I forget who it was that showed up with the checks, but uh, everyone says it was Ed McMahon. But does anyone know who Ed McMahon is now? I'm, I'm, I was going to say I'm dating myself and then I realized I've been like, I wasn't even alive when Ed McMahon was doing his thing, but whatever the case is, uh, they're just going to do that and start claiming that this was all part of their big, you know, made in Canada strategy uh, until someone better comes along and then the companies will pull up stakes and go there. That does it for us for today. We will end things there. My thanks to all of you for tuning into today's edition of the show. We'll talk to you tomorrow with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show. Thank you. God bless and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to the Andrew Lawton show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.